From WXXI News, this is Connections. I'm Evan Dawson. Our connection this hour was made in the pages of Roald Dahl's book, The Witches. Have you read it? The book involves a young boy discovering that there are witches among us dressing as high society women, that human beings are in danger. The witches wear wigs to disguise their bald heads and they wear gloves to disguise their twisted claws. The boy Bruno tells his grandmother that he will pull the hair of women that he sees to prove whether they are a witch. Dahl then writes that Bruno's grandmother was aghast. I'll quote from the book now. Don't be foolish, my grandmother said. You can't go around pulling the hair of every lady you meet, even if she is wearing gloves. Just you try it and see what happens, end quote. But you might have heard that the estate of Roald Dahl, who died decades ago, is changing the language used in this scene to fit modern sensibilities. The, te- the text will now read, quote, Don't be foolish, my grandmother said. Besides, there are plenty of other reasons why women might wear wigs, and there is certainly nothing wrong with that, end quote. This is one of hundreds of changes that the, the Dahl estate has made to many books. Verses in James and the Giant Peach have been removed entirely, where the centipede sings, Ant Sponge was terrifically fat and tremendously flabby at that, and Ant Spike was thin as a wire and dry as a bone, only drier. The Dahl estate has removed all references to the word fat. Instead, the text now reads, quote, Ant Sponge was a nasty old brute and deserved to be squashed by the fruit, and Ant Spiker was much of the same and deserves half of the blame. End quote. Here's how NPR recently covered this story. New editions of legendary works by British author Roald Dahl are being edited to remove words that could be deemed offensive to some readers, according to the late writer's company. Dahl wrote Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Matilda, James and the Giant Peach, Fantastic Mr. Fox, and many more. The Roald Dahl Story Company told the Associated Press that it worked with Puffin to review the books out of a desire to ensure Dahl's wonderful stories and characters continue to be enjoyed by all children today. The company said it worked with Inclusive Minds, an organization that works for inclusivity in children's books. Changes were small and carefully considered in their words. The changes have drawn criticism from advocacy groups, readers, and writers. Suzanne Nossel, who's the CEO of the free expression advocacy group PEN America, called the changes alarming. She tweeted, quote, Amidst fierce battles against book bans and strictures on what can be taught and read, selective editing to make works of literature conform to particular sensibilities could represent a dangerous new weapon. Those who might cheer specific edits to Dahl's work should consider how the power to rewrite books might be used in the hands of those who do not share their values and sensibilities, end quote. Renowned author Salman Rushdie stepped in as well, calling the changes censorship. He tweeted, quote, Roald Dahl was no angel, but this is absurd censorship. Puffin Books and the Dahl Estate should be ashamed, end quote. The Roald Dahl Story Company issued an apology for Dahl's anti-Semitism back in 2020. That, that's when the apology came out. The changes to his books represent an escalation in their approach to make his words, uh, his words and his work less offensive in their view. British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak even weighed in with a statement that read, quote, When it comes to our rich and varied literary heritage, the Prime Minister agrees with the BFG that you shouldn't gobble funk around with words, end quote. 
And Esquire notes that this appears to be becoming a trend. They write, quote, It is now the turn of Ian Fleming's James Bond novels to be rewritten. A report in the UK newspaper The Telegraph reveals that ahead of the reissue of the Bond novels in April, marking 70 years of Casino Royale, the first book in the series, rights holders Ian Fleming Publications commissioned a review by sensitivity readers. Each book will now carry the disclaimer, this book was written at a time when terms and attitudes which might be considered offensive by modern readers were commonplace. A number of updates have been made in this edition while keeping as close as possible to the original text and the period in which it is set, end quote. Some of the Bond edits include changes to how Bond describes black people. Other edits soften the language used to describe, for example, the scene in a strip club. Well, let's talk about those changes with our guests. Coming up, we'll hear from an author, Linda Sue Park, who has written rather prolifically uh, in, in her works for young readers and uh, a, a somewhat regular guest of the program. And we're joined now live by the following. Welcome to Adrian Petnelli, director of the Henrietta Public Library. Adrian, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Welcome to Aaron Turr, director of the public advocacy, director of public advocacy for the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, known as Fire. Aaron, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me on. And Julia Torres is with us, a teen services administrator in Denver Public Libraries and co-founder of Disrupt Techs. Uh, Julia, welcome to the program. Nice to have you. Thank you so much. Let me ask all the guests just for some opening thoughts. As as we heard about. Um, the Roald Dahl story, which broke first, and now we're hearing a little bit more about Ian Fleming and the Bond novels. Um, Julia, what came to mind for you when you heard about some of these changes, especially with the Roald Dahl series? Well, a couple of different things came to mind. You know, my background is in education, and I, I've worked with high school students for the last 20 years. And there have been instances, I'm sure, where I have participated in what we now call curriculum violence, which entails having books in the curriculum that cause harm or are triggering or upsetting to young readers. And so the first thing I thought was this is a move toward greater sensitivity and awareness and also acknowledgement about how the books we read shape our identity and views of ourselves as well as how we see one another. So that was kind of my first thought, is that um, there are folks behind the scenes, that, including those who are closest to those on the Roald Dahl estate, who are, that are trying to make a move toward greater inclusivity and sensitivity. Aaron Turr from FIRE, what, what were your first thoughts, on the, especially on the, uh, the Roald Dahl affair? Well, my reaction to, to the Roald Dahl affair uh, is that uh, making these kinds of changes to a book, uh, to an author's work posthumously, um, is not conducive to a vibrant culture of creative expression. I think it's, it's very limiting. Uh, it's very constrictive. I think that literature you know, is supposed to enable us to see the world through the writer's eyes and that editing the work to remove anything potentially offensive uh, limits the reader's access to the author's imagination and the perspective that they want to share with the world. You know, when you read a Roald Dahl book, you're expecting to see the world through Roald Dahl's eyes, not the eyes of a sensitivity reader. And that, you know, what, what really concerns me is that once you start down this road, things can get out of hand very quickly. Um, it really is a slippery slope because there's just no limiting principle. Uh, if we're just going to decide to start removing 
all the dirty words and unsavory characters out of every novel, you know, if you're okay with changing Dahl and Fleming, I think you don't really have a leg to stand on if in the future they start rewriting The Handmaid's Tale or The Bluest Eye or Catch-22 or, or any other classic novel. Adrian Petnelli out at Henrietta, how popular is Roald Dahl still? Very popular. Um, I put those books in kids' hands all the time myself. Uh, Roald Dahl's a huge favorite of mine. What did you think when you heard about the changes? So it's interesting because I agree, you know, with aspects of what both Julia and Erin have said. There's passages in those books, you know, that if they're read out loud in a classroom, I can really see how they would encourage um, negative language being used uh, in the in the classroom, students to each other without more conversation. But at the same time, so these books have his books are continually people are trying to ban them for things like being anti-authoritarian and, um, you know, children being too uh, independently minded. And so, you know, there's a lot of things that different types of people object to in them. And so making a choice between one thing or the other thing, uh, you know, it is a slippery slope, as Aaron says. But then also, I think the publisher and the family are recognizing that these books may fall out of favor and, you know, not be being reissued and reprinted and read because of some of these issues. So it's very, to me, very nuanced. Uh, and I'm, I'm really interested in this discussion. Well, well I want to hear from an author. And, and just about half an hour ago, I had a chance to speak for just a couple of minutes with Linda Sue Park, who is the author of Prairie Lotus, The One Thing You'd Save, and, and many other books. She writes for young readers. She's been on this program a number of times. Um, and, and she strikes me as someone who cares very much about being thoughtful about the impact of language, the impact on readers, and I, I think also the difference between adult readers and, and younger readers. And so um, I didn't know where she would sort of come down on this one. I just wanted to give her a chance to talk to us. And let's listen to some of what Linda Supark had to tell us this morning. Thank you. Great to be here. Could you tell us what your first thought was when you heard about the Roald Dahl situation and the edits there? Very conflicted, very mixed feelings. But I have been thinking a lot about it because it's very relevant to what I do with my work and with um, young readers. And what I have settled on is that um, it is, it is, it's just, it, there's something that doesn't feel right to me about altering a person's work when you can no longer ask them if they, if they mind it being altered or not, right? Uh, Roald Dahl's been dead for a while, and I know it's his estate, but it's not him. On the, the flip side of that is that it's with what children's writers do or should do. It's sort of like the Hippocratic Oath. We try to do no harm. <laughs> we try to do no harm to the young readers um, that we work for. Um, and some of these phrases and, and things that are used in books as they age uh, can do harm. And the idea would be if there were an adult guiding a young person's reading to say, oh, that's something that they said all those years ago, but we don't say that now because, and explain. But most young readers, I mean, really, most of them come to books without that kind of adult guidance, Right. So that's the problem. And when, if it's an adult book, an adult book has, an adult has many years of context 
you know, in which to place the phrases like that that they're reading. But kids don't have that. So that's the special problem that we have with, or the special concern, I should say, that we have when we write books for young readers. So what I have kind of settled on is that, is that the books should not be changed unless the author is there to say, you know, to give their permission. And even then that's problematic, but that's another story. <laughs> um, and, but they, that, that um, adults in positions of gatekeeping um, should try to interrogate their nostalgia. Okay? Many times kids come to these older books because they're just so fondly loved by adults in their lives. And that we need to let go of some of that nostalgia. You know, yes, we love these books, but we know better now and we need to do better now. And that means maybe instead of that book that you so loved when you were a child, you find out what's going on in today's books, which are more wonderful than ever. They really are. And you you um, use those books in your classroom and in your home and in your libraries. And those older books are on the shelves there. They're um, they're there. Um, we're not censoring them, but we are giving readers other choices. Briefly, let me just read one of the... Well, I, I want to ask you about the actual changes. Um, my understanding is there were hundreds of edits from the Roald Dahl estate, and they removed all references to the word fat. One kid who was described as fat is now enormous, but he's not fat. Um, there's another passage in which, um, from the witches that, that I had mentioned um, on the program earlier, in which uh, the, the boy Bruno tells his grandmother, well, he's just going to yank the hair on these women and, and find out who's got wigs to prove who's a witch. And she, in the original copy, she says, don't be foolish. You can't go around pulling the hair of every lady you meet, even if she is wearing gloves. Just you try it and see what happens. They changed that to the following. She says, don't be foolish. Besides, there are plenty of other reasons why women might wear wigs, and there is certainly nothing wrong with that. So it's much more anodyne in the second version, but I mean, yes. is that progress? How do you feel about that? Well, um, I, I'm interested particularly in the use of, in the, in the example of fat. So what you're doing there is you're stigmatizing fat. And from... Um, some of the work that I've done, the research I've done, and the um, people I've talked to who, um, who work on that specific issue, their preference is to destigmatize fat, right? To use it as a descriptor and not as a judgment word. So in effect, what you're doing with that first example is you are saying, oh, fat is bad, or fat means bad, so we mustn't use it. Whereas it should be used, you know, uh, it, in, in that case, I probably, I mean, maybe, maybe Dahl was being judgmental in using that. It certainly seems like it from his portrayal of the character, but the word itself, um, the goal is to not make it a judgmental word, but to make it a descriptive word. You see what I mean there? Sure. So there's an um, un unintended consequence that could have deleterious effects in the edit. Exactly. Exactly. And then we don't know what a language is just a moving target, right? We don't know what's going to be considered acceptable another generation from now, right? I mean, there was a time when, when people used good, good-hearted, good-thinking people had moved to the word Negro, right? <laughs> and we don't use that anymore in, in, that, in the sense that they used it. So what, are you going to change it again? 
in another 20 years? <laughs> Are you going to, you know, locate every every book that's already out there and try to, you know, so it just it's just there's so many there's so many um, issues to think about, um, and I, I recognize that the intent was good, but I think that uh, that it's it's not a cut and dried and simple question. That's Linda Sue Park, author of a number of books written for young readers, and we appreciate Linda Sue's time. Julia Torres, Teen Services Administrator in Denver Public Libraries. What do you make of some of her remarks there, Julia? Wow. Well, first I can say, you know, Linda Sue is someone that I admire so much. I I have so much respect for her as a writer and as a, a person who's worked with young people much longer than I have. And... I can say that while I was listening to her talk, I was thinking about the fact that a lot of people might not know. In library land, we acknowledge that there are multiple versions of an item that can exist. So the fact that we are producing new versions of this work or of these works doesn't necessarily mean that the old will go away, be destroyed, stop being circulated, stop being read, stop being enjoyed. So that's something to think about, too. I know that as we go forward in the development of our collective consciousness, hopefully we will have a little bit more awareness of the harm that words can do, such as I know that I myself had a lot of nostalgia for Laura Ingalls Wilder's books, and there was a lot of controversy about that last year and the year before about them and a phrase in one of the books that says the only good Indian is a dead Indian. I would not want as a mother, I would not want my children reading that without guidance in school these days. And I would not also want to have to justify that language if I were teaching as a teacher a class of third graders and then trying to explain that back in those days, this is why somebody might write like that. Um, I feel like instead I'd rather have a first person narrative or an imagined narrative from a native person that is alive today and share that work. Yeah. And Julia, when we think about the evolution of language, Linda Sue's point is an interesting one to me. She raised the point about how um, just the specific terms used to describe black people has changed over the years. And so that if today you wrote with the same descriptor that was used two generations ago, uh, you'd be in a lot of trouble. Um, and, you know, her point is that it is not really possible to predict how language is going to flow and how words are going to take on more or less heat when I was growing up, the word queer did not denote what it does today. That has changed a tremendous amount. So um, do, do you feel, Julia, that um, the burden is on the adults in the lives of, of young readers to help? Is there any place for the edits that the kinds of edits that not only we're, we're seeing with Dahl, but, you know, I mean, one can imagine seeing elsewhere after this. Hey there, Julia. We lost 
Oh, we lost Julia for a second. Well, why don't I send that over then? Let's it's, go down the list. Oh, we've got Julia I'm back. Here. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I apologize for that, Julia. So I, I don't know if you heard um, most of uh, what I was talking about, the, the way language evolves, but um, is is there a place in the future for edits to other texts, or, or really does this continue to fall then on um, young readers to, to learn and, and adults to help them learn and, and to contextualize? Well, something to think about is the fact that we're in the midst of a really devastating teacher shortage right now. So I don't know that we can rely on adults to guide young people in their reading of various texts. I think that it's beautiful when you have an ideal situation in a library or classroom where somebody is knowledgeable about literature and can help build enthusiasm and background context and knowledge with young people, but I've seen firsthand lots of situations where that is not the case. So I do think that we need to, we are responsible for the way that young people perceive the children's publishing industry by what we put in front of them. You know, we need to show them, give them the highest quality food to eat, so to speak, the highest quality intellectual food to eat. So we should give them the highest quality books to read. And we should also encourage them to create their own stories. And I know that young people that are turned off from reading are less likely to become writers and they're less likely to continue to read as they grow up and evolve. So we should keep that in mind as well. Let me ask Aaron Turr about this, Director of Public Advocacy for the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, uh, the organization known as FIRE. Aaron, you heard uh, Linda Sue Park, the author, saying that ultimately she does not agree with these edits, that she cannot get on board for a number of reasons. She also said she sees the, the James Bond edits, Ian Fleming's estate editing his work, differently than she does with the, the Dahl estate because... She understands the concern about younger readers who don't have the life experience to say, oh, this is a term that we wouldn't use anymore. This, is, this was written at a different time, and, and here's why I, I can understand that. Um, and so she's concerned about that, but she doesn't get all the way to the point of saying we, we, we can't, that, we, that we should be editing. Are you concerned as well? Do you think that young readers um, need guidance and, and support um, if we're not going to edit text? Well, sure. I think I think that what she was saying about, you know, the, the role of parents uh, in deciding what their kids can read or, or, you know, contextualizing what they read. I mean, that's an important that's an important point. I think that's that approach. Right. Is much preferable to one where we're having uh, large publishers um, release new editions of of text uh, that are you know, potentially out of sync with what the author's original intentions were and can change the tone and style and even the meaning of what they wrote. So, yeah, people have a choice about what art to consume. Parents can choose whether or not to let their kids read Roald Dahl, whether to contextualize parts of it that may uh, seem, you know, uh, anachronistic or out of touch with modern norms, uh, or they can decide to avoid Roald Dahl uh, altogether, and that's fine. Um, But, you know, I think what we shouldn't do is let the concerns of some parents or some readers out there dictate what art and literature is available for everyone else. And I think that, you know, I would say also there was some talk about what what's put in the curriculum and what becomes available, you know, in schools. 
Uh, and I think that's a separate question too, right? You can have that separate debate about whether to include a book in the curriculum, but I think that's that's a separate question from whether or not we should be changing what the author originally wrote. Sure, and and the notion of changing what was originally written, um, you know, we as I mentioned at the outset here, Pen America, Aaron, is raising a concern that. Um, we should understand that when we open the door to change the works of authors to suit modern sensibilities, uh, change and progress is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, someone who is an authoritarian, someone who is a fascist, someone who is, um, y- you know, maybe not interested in the notion of books that celebrate individual expression of children, free thought, etc., would have very different reasons, as Adrian and others have noted, to ban rolled doll. So you, you could have an agreement in different corners to ban rolled doll for different reasons or to, to re-edit rolled doll mm-hmm. for different reasons. But I think sometimes when we talk about progress and we talk about sort of modern sensitivities, um, it's not that people sort of don't believe that. I think it's just like it's the idea that, well, look, this is a, a broadly accepted it's broadly accepted that the way we talk about African-Americans has changed and, and for the better, and we should change some of the language. So can you describe, Aaron, the, the concern that your organization has, just as PEN America has shared, that if you open this door, you cannot predict who will use it in the future? Right. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think the, uh, when you look at the decisions about what, to, what they did change and what they decided to leave alone, in Roald Dahl's books and Ian Fleming's books, uh, I think that's a, a stark reminder of how arbitrary and subjective censorship is. You know, you gave the, the, a couple of examples earlier, right? You you can call uh, uh, you, you can't call a character fat, but you can call them enormous, right? You, or or you can call a character beastly but not ugly. Um, and and yeah, you you don't know at any given time uh, who's going to have who's going to hold the power uh, to make to engage in this type of censorship. I mean, think about, you know, there was a, um, a huge controversy, uh, I think, you know, kind of in the early 2000s, I want to say, about uh, the Harry Potter books, uh, where there was a lot of uh, opposition to uh, the witchcraft and the elements, uh, perceived elements of the occult or Satanism in Harry Potter books by, um, by certain um, uh, Christians, uh, and Christian conservatives. And... So you can just imagine, well, you know, if you had people like that in charge of a large publishing house, what kind of changes would they make to the work if they had made those changes to Harry Potter to remove those sorts of references, right? I mean, how would people that are accepting of the changes that were made to Roald Dahl's book react to that? Would they be okay with that as well? Um, So, yeah, I think it's if we don't push back against this sort of censorship, then we do get one step closer to uh, a sort of Puritan cultural landscape where you don't have any even mildly provocative art. And I'm, I'm not saying we're there yet, but this is the type of mindset that takes us there. Um, Adrian, my understanding is that um, since the Dahl estate announced these changes, there's been some pushback. We might not, we might not see the edited versions around here. Do you know? I don't know uh, at this point, uh, you know, what's going to be available and what's, what's not. I do think, you know, Julia makes a great point that in libraries we do tend to keep multiple versions of a book. So I would anticipate that even if we got the updated versions, a lot of libraries would, you know, particularly larger libraries, would choose to probably keep 
the old ones um, to have them available uh, for comparison contrast. Certainly the bigger libraries, maybe not smaller. Um, it'll be, that's going to be a really interesting choice, I think. That yeah. And, and can you also, Adrian, weigh in on, you know, Linda Sue says it's important for young readers to have some support from adults. Um, what's the role in the library system of, of providing that? It's, you know, I think one thing that we really do uh, in most libraries is we provide subject specialists who are working in the children's rooms to really talk to families and find out what their family is looking for, you know, and teachers too, uh, other folks who work with kids to really try to um, elicit from the families what, you know, what they hope for in the books so we can kind of steer them to what they're looking for. I know uh, Aranaquit Libraries started doing a really cool thing in their children's books where when you're seeing these classics, something like Little House on the Prairie, um, they have a little uh, note that they put in the front of the books that says, okay, this is a great book, but also just if you want other takes on this time period, if you want other takes on this subject, here's some other books, you know, which are more modern books. In that case, they actually refer to a, a Linda Sue, one of Linda Sue's books. I can't remember uh, the title of it off the top of my head, but I love that approach. I know in our library, we're really making a concentrated effort to display, you know, more modern books uh, and classics and choices in things. I think that that's huge. You know, what are what are you um, putting putting forth? You know. Uh, as recommendations, basically. So we're all trying to make sure that we aren't just leaning on these older titles that we all read when we were children, but that we're looking toward these modern contemporary books that are providing more, um, you know, just are more appropriate to modern sensibilities. That doesn't mean, you know, that kitchen sometimes read the classics, but also exclusively reading those books, I think, is going to give you, you know, a, a skewed kind of mindset and won't be interesting to a lot of kids. Yeah, this is, that's such a good point. And, and this is something that Linda Sue brought up. And um, we're going to take some phone calls and emails in just a second. So we're going to get to a lot of feedback from listeners on this, a lot of strong opinions on this. But Julia Torres, um, you're not just a teen services administrator in the Denver Public Libraries. I know you're the co-founder of Disrupt Text. I want to give you a little space if you want to talk about um, what that effort is all about. And, and I think that, you know, Adrian and Linda Sue are making important points about the there is much more nuance than we often hear in the public discourse about choosing reading lists, for example. Um, in 2016, we did some reporting in Rochester on the lack of, of diversity and teaching staffs. And it's extreme. And that's not a surprise, but it's extreme here, even more than the national averages. And as a result, you see, for example, in Pittsburgh and other school districts, you look at reading lists and it's it's the classics, but there were very few authors who weren't, you know, sort of white men. And it's not like white men can't write well or shouldn't be, be read. But of course, I can understand the desire to broaden that list. But if you do that, sometimes people say, oh, well, this, you're discriminating against the classics or you know, you're throwing out all the, the dead white men. Whereas I think you can do both and you can expand the list. And Linda Sue is saying, don't overlook the modern works of which there are many wonderful ones to choose from. So I want to give you some space, Julia, to kind of talk a little bit about what Disrupt Text is about and, and some of the thoughts there. Sure. So I am one of four 
DisruptTech's co-founders. And really what DisruptTech is, is a grassroots, crowdsourced effort. It is not in any way just the four of us out here bashing and trashing the classics. Um, if I were to teach a class today, I would absolutely have a balance, just like you mentioned, and I have had a balance. However, one thing that we four noticed is that many of our students were not reading or resonating with so many of the classics that were shoved down their throats. In essence, it's the same 20 to 30 books that people have been reading for the last 60 years. There are many books that are taught today that my mother read in high school in the 60s and, and some in the 70s when she was in college. So something that I have always endeavored to do is make sure that I, I would rather have a reader stick with reading and develop a lifelong love of words and language than have somebody conforming or pretending to do what I tell them to so that they can get a grade, what we call performative scholarship. And my firsthand experience has shown me, I've taught every language arts class there is at this point, 9, 10, 11, 12, I mean every secondary language arts class there is, 9, 10, 11, 12, I've taught AP English, language and literature, I've taught world lit, American lit, all the things, modern lit. And one thing I've noticed is that if you have students that come into the class that are disenfranchised from reading, period, giving them a classic often ends up being an exercise in power domination and just trying to get the person to do what you tell them to. There are many ways that these young people have of not actually reading the books at all. And we adults often like to fool ourselves into thinking that we are preparing them for life outside or beyond college and high school, or that we're giving them some sort of cultural capital by going through this exercise in futility. I can only speak through the lens of my own experience, but obviously our experiences, my experience resonated with a lot of people because lots of people started to follow the movement and it picked up momentum. Now, tragically, people simplified it into these four ladies hate the classics and are trying to ban and get rid of them. That's actually not true at all, but I can tell you that I, like I said, I've had many students through the years. I've been lucky enough to teach about 150 kids every year for the last 20 years. And many of them will tell you they do not read the books that they're assigned in school. So my first goal is that they will read the books. How are they going to read the books? When they resonate with them culturally, linguistically, ethnically, um, as far as subject matter goes. So I am with Linda Sue in that I am very much, and I think I can speak for the other three ladies at Disrupt Text as well, about promoting the books that are being written now. There are over 3,000 books published each year for young people, and so many of them have incredible, riveting stories and characters that are not only modern, but often fantastical. There are a lot of different books that are published for young people, and too many adults don't even read them, so they don't know. And along with that, I will say that I'm a librarian. I'm in the public library system now. And one of the things that I have seen is this um, book selection, book censorship, book um, challenging culture. And I do think that that conversation goes hand in hand with this one about editing or censoring an author's language in a text. What it really comes down to fundamentally for me is that we don't have the larger conversations 
about difference in our society and we don't have the larger conversations uh, and we don't listen to one another enough about what it is to live in somebody else's experience or shoes or experience their lived reality. And if we don't do that, then we're just going to be raising another generation of young people that grow up to be the adults that don't want young people exposed to lived realities that are not their own. I don't know if that made sense. I tried to get a lot (laughs) said in a little bit of time, but I hope that helps people understand a little bit better. Well, I appreciate that. Let me get to some feedback from listeners. This is John and Webster first. Hi, John, go ahead. Hi, Evan. Great show. And 25 minutes ago, I thought I had a lot to say. But after listening to your guests, especially the last guest from the Denver uh, Library, it just wiped out everything I had to say <laughs> except one thing. Yes. I mean, she just did a fantastic job. I'm a retired philosopher, as you know. I would hate to see changes made to the works of Plato and other philosophers. Um, I think of one great book that has been changed repeatedly for the worse. And that's the King James edition of the Bible. I'm not a believer, but I love the language in the King James edition and the imaginative things it causes in my mind because of how it's written. The new editions don't do that. They've watered it down. They've adulterated it. And they've done it just to sell more books. And I think that's what these people are doing when they change old texts to give new meanings. They're there not for the beauty of the language, but to sell more books to get more dollars. And I just think that is despicable. I like what you guessed from the Pan American um, uh, group had to say. They've just done a great job, and uh, I'm glad I listened, Evan. Thank you very, very much. Oh, John, you're very kind. Thank you, sir. Uh, Pen American Fire have been very much aligned on this issue. I do wonder, though, Adrian, you know, John sort of smells some commercialism in this. I don't know that that these changes will get people... I mean, I guess any publicity is good publicity. That's the old saw. But I don't know if this is going to make more people want to come out and find these books or buy these books or, or, or get them from the library. What do you think? Well, I think that, you know, the real issue becomes if books that have been standard parts of the curriculum, right? So they're selling a lot if they're standard parts of the curriculum start to fall out of favor because of issues like this, Mm -hmm. they are not going to sell anymore. And somebody is making money off of that who will stop making money. And like, I hate to be cynical, but I I kind of agree that Ah, that is a piece of why you might make a decision like this. I think of, um, you know, the Seuss estate pulled some of Dr. Seuss's books, you know, whatever that was, a couple of years ago, um, which were minor works in his canon um, for, you know, issues of, of racism. And I think that was a very calculated decision to try to save the rest of the books, right? So that they're deciding, okay, we're going to pull, we're going to let these go. So hopefully Seuss's legacy of can can continue because most authors legacies do not continue um so i think you know at some point folks are are thinking about how does how does this carry on and i think that's legitimate you know i think in the james bond books they're a great example of something that could 
I think they're read a lot less than they used to be already. And I can really see that trend continuing because there's so many more books in that genre that are being published today that don't have issues like that in them. So... Mm. Okay. See, look how naive I am. I never see enough commercialism, I guess. Um, <laughs> let me get Tom in Brighton. Hi, Tom. Go ahead. Yeah, hi. Um, yeah, the last lady who was speaking, I think she's from Denver, you know, was talking about expanding the, the uh, kinds of books that are written where they reflect the language and ethnicity of, of broad cross current of Americans, which I certainly agree with. But that's not the topic of this program. The topic of this program, I believe, is not whether we should have censorship or change existing books to reflect modern sensibilities. Uh, when I was a, a child or a young adult, I guess, I was reading Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn back in the early 60s. And we all know there, there's some uh, instances there where the N-word is used. And I, I even then I, I saw it, the problem with it, but I was able to understand it and have the sensibilities to know that that reflected only what Twain remembers when he was a child and, and heard those terms used in the early, I think it was 1850s or, or 1840s. And, uh, you know, we don't delete those words because we understand that people today understand where Twain is coming from and recognize that they're inappropriate to use today. Another instance where I have mixed feelings is I've seen some editions of Shakespeare's works written in modern language, which can be sometimes helpful for people who are trying to understand the storyline, get a quick understanding of it. Then hopefully they go back to the original edition and appreciate the language that Shakespeare used, the Elizabethan English and, and his um, attempts to use it to express his, um, you know, to write his plays. So that's my comment. Yeah, thank you, Tom. Just a note on Julia's background and, and why we, we certainly wanted her to talk about disrupt text. Sometimes people conflate different things, which is, hey, let's change the reading list or let's update high school reading lists or let's expand the canon. Let's expand what we're asking kids to read. And some people say, oh, well, you're just censoring. You know, you, you want to censor, you want to censor. And that's generally not the case. That's just a, it's a case of... Um, it's an alternative. So, you know, Julia's not saying, yeah, edit everything, sanitize and wash it all out, and then let's rewrite everybody's book. She's saying there's a lot of other things out there that often don't get considered that are really good alternatives anyway. So it is part of the conversation, I think, Tom, to be fair. But I also think, um, you know, it's interesting. You're bringing up this idea that, well, people can't understand Shakespeare, so we're adding some, so we're massaging the language or we're changing the language. Um, that is a case. I I don't know. I'll ask Aaron Turr from Fire on this. I don't view that as quite the same, although I haven't seen exactly what um, Tom's referring to. So there's a difference between the Cliff Notes version of making Shakespeare easier to understand versus actually changing what the bard wrote, whoever he was. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe a little bit different than what the Doll Estate is doing, but my guess is you, you don't want anything changed at Fire. What do you think, Aaron? Well, yeah, I think I think there is a distinction there in that. Well, so there was Thomas Bodler, right, who was the the uh, English physician. It's where we get the word Bodlerization from, uh, who you know expurgated text, including Shakespeare's, to uh, remove you know unwanted uh, content in there that was offensive to the to his sensibilities or, or the moral sensibilities of the time. I think that is much different than making edits to a text to for, just for the purpose of of. Uh, increasing 
the uh, ability of the modern reader to be able to comprehend it because it was written in sort of archaic language. But even then, I would hope that, you know, we would, if we would make it an alternative edition that's available and not say we're not going to keep printing Shakespeare's original text. We're just going to pr- uh, print these new versions. Uh, but, yeah, the bottom line is I think, you know, there is um, a big difference between edits that have to do with increasing comprehension or even, you know, you know I've also heard the, the objection – the objection to the objections about uh, what's being done to Dahl's and Fleming's works that, you know, th- this happens all the time in the publishing industry, right? Publishers and editors, writers have editors and they, they make edits to the work. Um, but they're, they're even there, right? There's a difference between, say, grammatical edits or edits that are intended to tighten the plot or structure of a novel or that address character development um, versus editors whose sole job is to negate the writer's creative choices that they believe are offensive or to make the books align with specific political or moral sensibilities. Um, you know, on the one hand, you're, you're trying to improve the literary quality of a book. Uh, and on the other hand, you're, you're trying to impose certain moral or linguistic sensibilities. Yeah, I, I, I take that point. Um, well, th- maybe one one idea that we're hearing with some frequency, I'll, I'll read an email from Bob in Fairport that sort of summarizes this. Uh, says, Evan, this is crazy. Where does it end? Just publish a special edition with a foreword or footnotes that address and explain sensitive passages. That's from Bob in Fairport. Now, before I kick it over to all three of our panelists to talk about whether they think that is a possible solution here, let me just say that, Bob, you said that you think this, this set of actions, the Dahl Estate and the Fleming Estate, are taking are crazy. Interestingly, words like crazy have been edited out of the doll books to try to defer to concerns about modern mental health. So words like crazy and mad have been removed. Um, words black and white have been removed. Characters no longer in doll books turn white with fear. And, for example, the big friendly giant, the BFG, is no longer said to wear a black cloak, but instead wears a dark cloak. Um, and then uh, other references, if you're curious, uh, Mrs. Twit's fearful ugliness is now just ugliness. Mrs. Hoppy in ACO Trot is a kind middle-aged lady instead of the original version, an attractive middle-aged lady. In the Twits, it says you can have a wonky nose and a crooked mouth and a double chin and stick out teeth, but if you have good thoughts, they will shine out of your face like sunbeams. The edited version takes out the double chin part. Again, a reference uh, apparently objectionable because it implies fatness. So, but Bob says, look, don't do these edits. Just publish special editions with either a foreword or series of footnotes. Um, Julia, how do you feel about that approach? I actually like it. Um, there's a quote that says, for those that are accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression. And if you've had the privilege your whole life of, for the most part, being able to pick up a book and count on the fact that you'll read it and you'll see yourself represented, there won't be any language that will offend you. There isn't going to be anything in there that is going to pinpoint a demographic that you belong to as one that should be killed or is lower class. You're not going to have to read about any physical descriptors that are going to make you feel like you're ugly. Then, you know, that I can say that there are certain groups of society that are privileged by the literary landscape that we have uplifted. And you can see that in the statistics and demographics of 
who is publishing and who is writing books. Um, with that said, I think it's a nice middle ground. And I always want to relate back to what I mentioned before in library land to keep the old and bring in the new. I think that's a nice way to, to have a compromise. Okay. Um, Adrian Petnelli, how do you feel about four words or, or footnotes? I, you know, and of course we have to remember I'm a, I'm a, was once a child who grew into a librarian, but I would read stuff like that when I was a kid. <laughs> I would read the fine print on the front of the books, uh, you know, to see what, um, you know, what a thing was. And I remember first coming across the, you know, the term abridgment in a book I read, you know, that it was in the front and, you know, then asking questions. Well, I have an abridgment. What is this? What does that mean? And then I wanted to get the original and compare it. You know, so I think that does give kids an opportunity, um, you know, particularly that's, you know, kind of my lens to see, you know, to, to delve back if they want to, to ask what has been removed and why it's been removed um, or to, um, you know, interrogate what they're reading. So I think that is a way to reach. Um, something I love that's kind of a newer trend that um, addresses this somewhat is you're seeing adaptations of um, classics coming out like as graphic novels where they've taken the um, story, but they've adapted, you know, with kind of, they take the characters, but they change them. A great couple examples that just came out last year are updates of Anne of Green Gables. And one is this Anne of West Philly by Ivy Noel Weir, which uh, turns Anne into a foster child in Philadelphia. She's a girl of color. It's an urban environment. So it takes the notes of the story, but it puts it in a whole new setting. And um, so it kind of gives kids a, a new way of looking at classic material, which is what we do with classics. We adapt them. There was another one called Anne, an adaptation of Anne of Green Gables, sort of, uh, by Kathleen Gross, which also had Anne as a foster child. But in this case, instead of the love interest being Gilbert, it is Diana, her friend Diana. So, again, a different take um and both of those would refer back to the original source material and i love seeing that because i feel like it modernizes but still honors uh last minute let me send it over to aaron and i'm going to let julia torres go she's getting right back to work at the denver public libraries julia thank you for your time let me send it over to aaron what do you think about the notion of four words footnotes etc aaron well i think that that's a definitely a preferable alternative to just you know letting the original works go out of print or replacing them with boulderized versions of the work. Uh, you know, in, in that case, um, you're not changing the, the author's original words. And so I think that that's, that's better. Um, at the same time, you know, I would, I would caution against the, the idea that, or just, I, I would raise some concern about the idea that we're kind of sending a message um, that, you know, you, you shouldn't expect to ever, confront any kind of material literature that's challenging or that kind of makes you uncomfortable or or uh that maybe you know is is provokes you in some way provokes some sort of emotions maybe they're good maybe that sometimes they're bad um i think that's part of what it is to read literature you know it's, it's partly about sometimes stepping out of your com comfort zone and embracing uh seeing perspectives that you you know that you haven't considered before Aaron, where do people learn more about FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression? Uh, you can go to our website at uh, thefire.org. 
Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and uh, uh, other social media platforms. Aaron Turr, thanks for joining us for this afternoon. Thanks so much. Adrian Petnelli, director of the Henrietta Public Library. I know we'll find you there. Thank you, Adrian. Thank you. Wonderful having you. Our thanks to Julia Torres, who had to step out, get right back to work in the Denver Public Libraries. Uh, and Linda Sue Park, of course, the author of so many wonderful books. We appreciate her time. More connections coming up in just a moment.